Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everybody, to the April 16th, 2015 episode of Getting In. I'm really excited because tax day is past us now, so hopefully everyone who's listening has filed their taxes for the year. Uh, and I'm also very excited because we have lots of great things to talk about today. Especially for those of you uh, who are maybe aspire to the Ivy League or perhaps you have children who aspire to the Ivy League or similarly highly selective colleges, you're really not going to want to miss this. I have former Yale admissions officer Amy Alexander, who also is a colleague of mine here at College Coach, who's going to join us to talk about the basics of admission to the Ivies, uh, including curriculum choices, extracurricular activities, standardized test scores, all that good stuff. And then Jean Mahan, who's been a guest before, uh, is going to share her thoughts on assessing the value of a particular college, something that absolutely must be top of mind for most parents and students who are looking at college costs in the tens of thousands of dollars. It's certainly gotten very pricey, so value is important. But before we get to all of that, I'd like to welcome former Goucher admissions officer and college counselor and current college coach colleague, Lisa Albro, to the show to talk about demonstrated interest. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Beth. Well, thanks so much for for joining us today. So we're going to be talking about demonstrated interest. And for those listeners in the audience who maybe are wondering, I have no idea what that is, (laughs) what exactly is demonstrated interest? What does that term mean? Well, it's kind of what it sounds like. You want to show interest in a college if you're applying to it. Uh, I tell my students it's showing the college a little bit of love, in a way. Uh, You want an admissions officer reading your application to feel like you know about their school, you've maybe visited, if you're living close enough by that a visit is not prohibitive. Uh, You know, if you live in California and the school is in New York, it's not always expected that you would visit the school. But, uh, you know, if, if the school is within an hour's or a couple of hours' drive, not a prohibitive uh, trip, uh, mm-hmm. it's a good idea to visit. Um, but there are other ways to demonstrate interest. Um, you know, staying in touch with the school, responding to their uh, mailings or emails that you might get, um, going to local events that the school might host. Maybe there are some uh, local sort of information sessions. Uh, I know, I think Penn used to do something with a few other schools, right? A traveling sort of program. For sure. Family. Except right? I'll, th- at, I'll throw at, a wrench like a- in here. <laughs> we did do a traveling mm-hmm. program with other schools. I'll throw a wrench in, though. We didn't care if people came or they didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. right. That's true. And then there are some schools that, that won't care as much, and we can get, get to that in a moment. But uh, attending programs, um, responding to mailings, uh, maybe interacting with the admissions counselor for your area. You can go Mm -hmm. on the website and usually find out who that person is uh, who represents your school uh, for admissions and uh, reach out to them with a question here or there. Right. Another way you can do it. Uh Yeah. And and I'm based on all the things that you just said, I think my biggest piece of advice for people who are looking for ways to demonstrate interest is the very first thing to do is go to the school's website because that's where you're going to find out uh, what the policies are for visiting, 
whether or not they are going to be in your hometown, whether or not they're going to be maybe even visiting your high school, uh, what the name of your admissions officer is. It may not be right there front and center, but if you do a little bit of digging, a little bit of searching, you can often find that information out. So always, I don't know how we did it before the internet, and I will um, admit that I did apply to college pre-internet, but nowadays I don't imagine starting anywhere other than the school's website. And um, so you just went through a lot of different ways to demonstrate interest. Would you say that there's one way that's better than another? Well, I think you and maybe many of our colleagues would agree that probably the best way to demonstrate interest would be to apply early decisions. However, that would not be right for every student in every case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a blanket statement in a way, but, uh, you know, the clearest way to say, I love you, college X, Y, or Z, is to, you know, sign it on the dotted line and say, if you admit me, I am a sure thing, I will go. Um, Financial aid has to come into play there. If, if, If the cost of attending is going to require that you have some aid or something, you may not want to apply early decision. I'm not a finance expert, as you know. Our finance team members can certainly go into more detail about those sorts of things. Um, but also applying early decision isn't right for everybody, uh, for academic reasons, for, um, you know, being strategic uh, with, with where they apply. But it is mm-hmm. the clearest way to demonstrate it. Um, sure. Visiting is, I would say, probably the next best way. Uh, again, as long as visiting is, is not prohibitive, you don't have to fly all over the country to get to a place. But if you do, and th- you know, that's, that's great. If you can make it, you can get to a campus. Right. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think certainly early decision is great. Not every school has early decision, and it's not right for every student. So the very next best thing is... I think definitely a visit. That's the, um, as I, when I talk to friends who've worked at schools where demonstrated interest really matters, that's mm-hmm. the thing they usually hold up as the gold standard, going and visiting. Right. Well, going back to earlier when we were talking about um, the programming that we used to do when I was at Penn, and um, we used to travel with Harvard and Duke and Georgetown, and we put on a program called Exploring College Options, and it's not uncommon to see other groups of schools travel together because it's a great way to reach a lot of families with one evening program. They give up two hours of their evening, come and maybe learn about three colleges, four colleges, maybe even six colleges all in one shot. That's really great. Um, But at our program that we used to do, we would take sign-ins because people felt so they just needed to sign in. (laughs) You know, we'd put out the sign-in sheets and people would just be really eager to sign in. They really wanted us to know that they were there. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I, you know, never had the heart to tell people was that we really, we weren't keeping track. We didn't really use those sheets for very much because we assumed that at a place like Penn, um, we, you know, part of the Penn application was then and is still now. Uh, one of the assignments is to write an essay about why Penn, and that was a great place where people could show off um, how the, interested they were in the school by being very specific about what was it that attracted them to the school, courses that interested them, professors they wanted to study with. We had a lot of ways at getting at that demonstrated interest. And so for us, that was the place where you could demonstrate interest. You certainly didn't need to travel to campus or come to one of those programs. Um, mm-hmm. That's one example. Would you say that, and so clearly not all colleges and universities demonstrate interest, but is there a way to tell who 
cares about whether or not you visit or go to one of these evening programs or show up when the admissions officer is in your high school? How do you tell who cares and who doesn't? Sometimes you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, websites, some, some websites will very clearly state that interest is a factor. Um, in fact, one of our colleagues and I were just having a little email exchange about one particular school that she thought required demonstrated interest, but when reading their website, they clearly say uh, demonstrated interest is not a factor. It used to be, but it no longer is. Uh, so sometimes you do see those little nuggets of, of information on their website. Um, one other way to know is if you're looking at the application supplement, and granted, by the time you reach the application, you probably should have visited already. Um, <laughs> yep. But on the supplement, very often there might be places for you to indicate how many points of contact you might have had with the school. And that might be an indicator that they're, they're measuring that. Uh, chances are if there were points of contact where you were to sign in or they had your name in some way, shape, or form, they're already tracking that. But I think if you see it on an application supplement, you, you generally can assume that they're, they're tracking whether you're showing interest. Right. Uh, so those are those are a couple ways. In all fairness, uh, places where you know Ivy League schools, very very selective institutions, don't tend to uh, measure that as much or at all <laughs> because right. they know they're going to get a population of very interested applicants regardless, and they're pretty much always going to make their enrollment goals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Yield is not going to be a concern <laughs> at Harvard <laughs> or at Dartmouth. <laughs> They're going to enroll a class every year. And I think that actually that's interesting for our viewers or our listeners to understand is that the reason it matters if you are interested in a school is because every school out there has an enrollment goal every year and that they need to hit. So they need to enroll a certain number of students to fill their class. And so while when you pay attention to all of the news and the media, you would think that the colleges hold all the power and nobody gets into school and it's all a disaster for everybody. The reality is that mm-hmm. there are far more. In fact, the vast majority of colleges out there are working hard to fill their class every year. And so the more offers of admission they can send out to students who they know are more likely to attend, the less hard work they have ahead of them at this time of the year when the numbers are coming in about who's accepting their offer and it's looking thin. And now they're worried, well, we're going to fall short. We might not have 100 students um, to, to help us reach those goals. And so that's why at the core of it, um, demonstrated interest matters at some schools. Um, that's right. And, and sometimes when it, it comes into play at different parts of the process, it may not be something they consider right at the beginning of considering applications, but maybe when they've already made a number of admissions decisions and they know they only have a certain number of spots left that they can offer uh, in order to hopefully reach their, their goals, um, they, they may have to be a little bit more careful about who they accept um, mm-hmm. so they don't over-enroll either. So right. they might be looking at student X and student Y and maybe student X has visited or has demonstrated interest in some measurable way, um, and student Y maybe hasn't, and, and maybe student Y is even a stronger student by the numbers, by the stats, but maybe that college might say yes to student X who might not be as strong as student Y because that first student showed interest, and, and they might be more of a sure bet, and they're still within range to be admitted, and so, you know, the nod could go to that first student who showed the interest and not the maybe stronger by the numbers student who didn't. 
Right. I mean, one thing that I see a lot of, and I'm guessing you do too, uh, I would guess that probably all of our colleagues here at College Coach see this a lot, is I have my students, when they plan their visits, they invariably target the schools that are their reach schools. Because for whatever reason, human nature, the world we live in, I don't know what it is, we want what we can't have. We want what is the least likely to happen. So Mm -hmm. they spend a lot of time and money falling in love with schools that are pretty big reaches, and then they forget, oh, right, I have these other couple of schools on here that are more likely to accept me, and, well, we didn't have time, so we didn't get there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so one of the big things I'm always telling my families is you need to make time for every school that you're going to apply to, particularly Mm -hmm. if every one of those schools cares if you have shown interest, because to the point that you just made, you could have two candidates, one of whom appears to be more qualified from an academic perspective, um, but if they haven't shown that school any love, the school may assume, well, they're just using us as a backup, we'd rather take this other kid who really wants to be here. And, um, you know, that's another reason why demonstrated interest really matters. You bring up a great point, Beth, and and I absolutely tell my students the same thing, that they really need to show their safeties or their no-problem schools the the love as well. Um, You know, one of our our, uh, long-term colleagues out there in the college counseling world, uh, Joyce Mitchell, used to be at the Nightingale Bamford School, um, she wrote a book about uh, college admissions, and she always said, have eight first-choice schools. And uh, I tell my yep. students things like that all the time. You treat your reaches and your safeties with the same amount of interest and love and um, dedication and, and um, you know, research and all of that. So those safety schools are still more likely to say yes to you if interest is something they're measuring. Right, exactly. And and I also, I do want to go back to a point that you made at the beginning, which is certainly visiting is a gold standard for showing interest um, after after you think about early decision. And I I do think that if you're going to plan your trips, one of the things to do first is to really be thoughtful about if you're going to spend time and money to go and visit some campuses, hopefully at that point the student has done some research and weeded out schools that don't make sense for them because maybe they don't have the right academic program or maybe they've started to settle on a type of school that they like. Um, You know, use your local schools to determine and try to narrow down or, or focus in on what the right school is for you. And then when you spend time and money to travel farther to go visit schools, you can really keep that to schools that seem to make sense for that student. But you mentioned a few different ways um, if you can't visit because, you know, realistically, you're not going to visit every single school that you're considering. And for one reason or another, a school may make your list later on in the process or it may be the one outlier that's, you know, you live in California and it's in um, Maine, but everything else Mm -hmm. is in a different area. I would love to go through a couple of different ways in which um, uh, you could show interest, even mm-hmm. if you can't visit. Sure. Take us through sure. that. Well, you know, go, easiest thing to do, go on the website and find out where you can register to be on the mailing list to get information. That will be a point of contact. Um, find out if there are professors in certain departments you'd be interested in talking to. You know, reach out maybe to the admissions people who might know who the good go-to professors are, the ones who are more likely to answer your questions if you Mm -hmm. uh, email them or call them. Um, 
ask them for advice on who to contact. Sometimes those admissions people will remember you, um, maybe especially if it's in an email and they can print it out and keep it in a file or hold on to it somewhere. Um, but, but sometimes those professors end up being really good advocates for students who have reached out to them, had interesting questions, have kind of proven themselves to be um, interesting enough candidates to the professors that the professor might say to admissions, somebody in admissions. I've had people walk into my office or email me or call me when I was in admissions and say, uh, I just talked to a really great student and I want him in my class this fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what right. an endorsement. No you kidding, know, right? And that, and that takes a little bit more um, motivation on a student's part. Not every kid, I think, who's 16 or 17 years old is likely to want to reach out to a, a, an adult they've never met um, and ask all kinds of questions, especially if somebody in academia. But if, if you're inclined to do that or if you can get up the, you know, the gusto to do something like that, um, you never know. It could really pay off for you. Right. And so, I think yeah. I think you make a good point. This isn't necessarily for every student. And I also think contacting people just to contact them is never a good idea. You don't want to email an admissions officer and ask them what their average SAT scores are. Um, <laughs> you can find that information on the website. When mm-hmm. you are getting in touch with someone, it could be literally to say something as simple as, I really wanted to visit, but unfortunately... Um, we couldn't fit it into our plans. I live in Washington State, and you are located in Florida, and I just couldn't make it. But I wanted you to know that I'm really interested. It can literally be as simple as that. Um, sure. And if you have some good questions, I think that's good, too. But I would say that across the board, admissions officers' pet peeves are students who waste their time, who are you know, reaching out with silly questions that they could easily get answered elsewhere, that's not going to help you at all. So you have to be careful about that. Um, Exactly. Now, admissions reps sometimes visit high schools as well in the fall. mm -hmm. So it's a good idea for students to find out which reps are visiting and from where. And if they're able to go make it to that visit, that sometimes it's just a a, a class period, a short information session, usually those reps will have them fill out some sort of, you know, info card or something on themselves. They should always make sure that they're writing down their name and giving them their information if they're being asked to do so. Um, So it's another point of contact. Absolutely. And I think we touched on when they're in your town, going to those events. One last question, because we do have to wrap it up. What are your feelings about if you've already visited, do you have to do all the rest? Um, Is there a point at which you can kind of say, okay, they know I'm interested and I I don't need to maybe go to that evening reception um, or go to the in-person meeting at my school? Right. I mean, I think at some point for some schools, it, it matters whether they're demonstrating the interest or measuring the demonstrated interest. Um, it, does it hurt to go to these things? No. Um, you don't want to call the admissions person once a week and ask the silly question, as you know, as we talked before. Um, you, know, you don't want to overdo it. Uh, but certainly if, if there might be something else you can learn at one of these uh, programs or one of these open houses or something like that, and, and you, you have the time and are able to get there, why not? But if mm-hmm. you've already done some of the, the bigger things like visiting campus and so forth, um, and you know, you're know you looking at your pile of homework and you think, oh, I just don't have time to make it or, or it's hard for me to get to this place, then you're probably okay if you don't do it as long as you've gone to see campus or done some other meaningful uh, demonstrations of interest. 
I agree. I do think if the admissions officer is going to read your file is coming to your school, you should find a way to get there, even if it's literally Uh for one minute to shake the person's hand and say, I'm really sorry, I have a calculus test this period, Uh but I wanted to say hello, or even to to have your guidance counselor let that person know. But um, That's exactly what I used to do for my students when I was working on the the high school side, rather. Very often they'd come to me and say, I can't get out of class, or my teacher won't give me permission, but I really want to see this person. And I'd say, okay, and I have a little run list of students who really wanted me to just kind of, you know, make their introductions on paper <laughs> a little right. bit. And I would. Exactly. I'd say, oh, I have a great kid, couldn't come see you, he really he had a test, he wasn't able to get free, but he really wanted to meet you, and it's very important for him. Do you have any information I can pass on to him? Um, and and that, was, that was meaningful. Right. Too. Thank you, Lisa. There was some really, really great information here. I really appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. After the- Absolutely. And after the break, Amy Alexander and I are going to talk Ivies and other highly selective colleges, so don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Well, we're back, and as I promised, um, I have with me Amy Alexander, who's a former Yale admissions officer and also a Yale grad herself, uh, and she's going to talk to me, or we're going to talk together about Ivy League admissions. Welcome, Amy. Hello, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. One thing that I am constantly struck by because I live in this world and because I have for a number of years now and it sometimes feel like it's the o- feels like it's the only thing I ever talk about. Um, but I am constantly struck by um, what happens at this time of year uh, 
when uh, decisions come back and I talk to people who, not people that I've been working with, but just people, and in this case, it was a friend of my, uh, my son's, his mother, who um, are sharing a story about somebody who applied to an Ivy, um, in this case, it was Penn, where I used to work, and are surprised that the student didn't get in. And the comment will often go along the lines of, well, he goes to such a great school and just had such great grades and test scores, you would just think. And I always want to hit my head and think, it's it's kind of amazing to me that at this point it it hasn't word hasn't spread and of course that is because this is what I do and of course it hasn't people have much better things to worry about but that word hasn't spread that the grades and the test scores are the basic point of entry and that these days there are so many students with wonderful grades and test scores um, it really isn't a defining factor in terms of why you get accepted so. What Amy and I are hoping to cover today uh, are just helping people understand really the basics, the basic expectations for those applications that help take students from being competitive to being, wow, this is a really interesting student. This may be someone that we want to admit. Um, so, Amy, let's start with academics. Uh, okay. Are good grades enough? Good grades are not enough, and I know we're going to break down, um, we're going to talk about the different pieces, but maybe just to start based on your introduction to help people understand, because I too get those those calls or, you know, I have three children that are in their teens, two are out of the house, I still have a sophomore in high school at home, and I constantly get friends that, you know, the tennis, the side of the tennis court matches or whatever, like, I can't believe it, the same thing, he had... Mm-hmm you know, 800, 750, 750, and was number three in his class. Amy, I I don't get it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just wanted to help clarify for the listeners that at Ivy Admissions, it really is a holistic approach. And I always liken it to six pieces of a pie. So the six pieces being academics, which we're going to start with, and I'll get back to that. But academics, testing, recommendations, essays, extracurriculars, which is anything they do outside of the classroom, including hobbies, summer activities, and what I call the last one, personal qualities and background. All of those things are really important. And you have to remember that Ivies try very hard to build a diverse class from people all over the world. So mm-hmm. although the kid from, you know, New York or New Jersey or Connecticut is a standout number three in his class and his near-perfect SAT scores, they can't take every kid like that. So I try to help people kind of have a bigger picture of it. But if we go back to just the academics, I will say that that is, first and foremost, the most important piece of IV admissions. Now, all those other six pieces are important, but I'd say academics is definitely Can I give it a percentage? No, because it's going to depend on so many other elements. But I will say that is the most important thing in what the admissions officers spend a lot of time reviewing. And with that, it's not just the final GPA or that they were number three or number one in their class. I mean, a really good example is Harvard in 2014. I think they had 3,400 kids ranked number one in their class in the applicant pool. They only accepted 2,000 kids. They couldn't take all of those kids, and they wouldn't watch them, okay? So in terms of academics, they really look at the rigor of the courses that the kids take. You know, 
each each high school has a profile that describes all the courses that are offered, and if there are APs or an IB program offered, whether it's the, you know the standard level, the the higher level, they look at the kids are taking those classes. Um, you know, also they look at that kids take the five core classes each of the four years. There has to be a very, very good reason why someone would drop a foreign language or drop a social science in their senior year. It happens, but there'd have to be a very good reason. And Um, if they do it, you'd need to double up in another area. But to your point, you know, that isn't something that everyone should say, well, I'm just going to double up and I'm going to drop this. There should be a really good reason. And certainly you shouldn't be going with four cores in your senior year if you want to go to some of these very selective schools. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, not that I'm a proponent of it because I believe in balance. I believe you also have to spend time doing extracurriculars, and we'll talk about that later. But, you know, also have a social life and enjoy, especially your senior year. But I Mm -hmm. have seen a lot of kids applying to Ivy's that do have six core or solid courses their senior year. That's not uncommon, you know. Right. It's not a time to slack off. That is definitely for sure. Yeah, because um, colleges, yeah. you know, all colleges, but especially the Ivies are the very high, highly selective ones, will look at your senior year courses and see that you're continuing that trajectory, that you really will come there and take the place by storm academically and, and engage yourself. And that's really important. Right. So just to recap for our listeners, all five major subject areas, math, science, English, history, social science, um, and foreign math, language. Science, foreign language. Did I think feel like I missed one? Math, science, English, history, social science. Yes. And foreign language, all four years. Uh, going to ideally the highest level available at that school um, by the time you gr- you're a senior and doing really well. And doing really well generally means A's. There isn't yeah. a lot of wiggle room for B's. I'm not saying a B here or there means you don't get in, but the more B's, the less likely. And C's can really, really be uh, tragic, I guess, is the only way to put that. For well, I, I, I call admissions. them a red flag. I call them a red flag. When I see a C, I want to know why. You know, um, if it was in ninth grade and, you know, there's a good reason. Maybe maybe it's not. Right. You're not going to not get in, but it's not good. It's going to be a red flag. I think that's a good point. And the one other thing I would say about the academics and the transcript is, you know, just to give listeners an idea, students ideally, you know, at the larger high schools are going to be in the top 5%, really likely maybe even higher, top 1% or 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just where you want to be. You know, um, there are kids that get in that are in, you know, a second decile or, or a lower percent, um, but that's not as common. That's just what you want to shoot for. Right. That's the exception, not the norm. And I think your point's a really great one, which is these schools are looking for the best of the best. And that's one way in which you can demonstrate that. Okay. You and I could probably talk three shows about this. So let's move on. So we at least cover some of these. So the next one is standardized testing. Um, I will start it out by saying ACT or SAT, they don't care. Um, just take one or the other. Pay attention to what their rules are because some schools are going to require subject tests. Um, others may say, well, if you take the ACT, you don't need the subject test. Uh, there isn't a blanket rule of thumb for each of these schools, so you need to look at their individual testing policies. Mm-hmm. But can you talk us through the... You know, what the expectations are, um, you know, maybe when to be thinking about taking these, um, any general advice about what to take, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, 
you know, everyone, every college advisor is different. I tend to be more uh, supportive of in your end of your sophomore year, beginning of your junior year, you're going to take the pre-SAT or you're going to take the PSAT. Everyone takes the PSAT junior year in October. Mm-hmm. So my feeling is take practice tests in both of those exams. See which one you have more of an affinity for and maybe stick with that exam. You know, mm-hmm. then plan to take that exam in late winter, early spring of your junior year. I think it's better to take it then because you've had more curriculum. And these tests, especially the newer, and we won't get into the nuances of the newer SAT, which nope. is happening you... next year, but that's a whole other segment. But, yes. you know, these tests are moving more toward the ACT already is curriculum-based, knowledge-based, content-based. So I think the longer you're in school and have this material, covering this material, the better you'll do. So that's why I suggest usually late winter, early spring. See how you do. See if there's an area of weakness or an area you think you can improve on. Maybe take some prep, you know, whether it's a tutor or a course or just studying every day, doing practice tests, you know, all of that online. And then you could take it again late spring or early fall of your senior year. But when we're looking at testing for IVs, most of them do suggest or require that you take two SAT2 subject tests. So you have to factor that into your, your calendar for testing. And I always recommend that students take those SAT2 subject tests at the end of when they finish that subject. For some students, biology might be ninth grade. And if they're generally good testers and they did well in biology, by all means, take it at the end of ninth grade. You're going to find, you know, chem or maybe you know, some students uh, are taking pre-calc, algebra 2 trig in 10th grade, take the math level 2 at the end of 10th grade. Quite often they take them at the end, usually June of their junior year. In terms of scores, across the board, I would say with the SAT2 subject test, you want to be 750 or higher for the yep. SAT test. You want to be coming in, and I'm not going to use the writing because they, you know, they always look at it, but it's not considered, you know, as heavily as the critical reading and math. I would say you've got to come in at a 1500 or higher. Again, that's 750 on each of them, really with no subscore below 700. You've got to be over 700 if you're, you know, again, there's going to be exceptions. But in general, to get accepted to highly selective Ivy schools, you have to be over 700. And with the ACT, I'd say a 34 or higher, quite often a 35 or 36. No subscores below 33. And when you're talking about AP exams, generally five. On occasion, there might be a four, but generally there are five. Yeah, and I would say that, at least at Penn, the AP scores were considerably less important than the the ACT score, the SAT scores. If only because um, at each of the Ivies, they do a calculation, an, an academic index, it's called. Mm-hmm. And that really helps to define how academically qualified the student is. And they don't use AP scores in those calculations, but they do use SAT or ACT scores and subject test scores in those calculations. So... But I, to your point, uh, the fact is that if you're a super qualified candidate for the Ivies, you're typically going to have taken some APs and you've, you're going to have done well on those. Or you maybe have done the IB program, in which case you'll have predicted scores that are usually sixes and sevens. Um, and, yeah. you know, fives are not really going to cut it. So we're, um, I want to move quickly through some of these other pieces because we are getting tight on time, but I just, I want to be clear, hopefully a picture is emerging for people here of an incredibly 
uh, successful student. And we aren't really talking philosophically here about the Ivies right now, and we're not going to get into that. But um, we just want you to understand just the, the you know, when you're admitting 5% or less of your applicant pool, as a couple of these schools are, you have to imagine that the level of accomplishment is quite, quite high. Okay, so yeah. let's talk about recommendation letters um, because that's okay. another piece of the pie. Well, and that's another one. Again, you know, it's it, looking at highly selected schools, the recommendations that come through when I was at the Yale admissions office, those typically said, I rate this student among the top 1% to 2% of students I've taught in my career. They stand mm-hmm. out. They are unique in X way. They are their intellectual curiosity, their level of participation. They led the class. They enthused the class. They motivated the class. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of superlatives that I would read daily. Without those, we kind of considered the the teacher recommendations flat, you know, Mm -hmm. or just kind of average. And, you know, they didn't necessarily help, but they didn't, you know, and they didn't necessarily hurt. But to really have the recommendations help, and as I mentioned earlier, this holistic approach, recommendations can really help. You have a lot of kids with strong academics and testing, what we just spent a lot of time on, but a lot of kids in that general range. So then these other pieces really come into play. And recommendations often tipped a kid in when they had certain statements that they said, literally the best student I have ever taught in my career. Hard to turn the kid down if they had everything else. Exactly. And I think a good point here, too, is this is really all based on what the student is capable of doing in the classroom. And not every student is going to be this type of student. And by the way, that's fine. (laughs) But um, if if the aspiration is Ivy or highly selective, that's the kind of student that they need to be. All right. What about the essays? Those are a component of every single application to a an Ivy or a highly selective institution like Stanford and MIT. Um, what are the expectations for those? Well, again, those are really, really important. But I won't necessarily say it's going to get a student in, but it can mm-hmm. keep a student out. Yep. So, you know, for students that use shock value or it's particularly formal, or it's standard or inappropriate, that could really keep a kid out. The essay really has to be, obviously, strong, engaging writing, unique, set the student apart, uh, show authenticity, present genuine self. The other thing I'll say is the main, we'll talk about the main common application essay, um, you know, this the topic they pick, it's one of the five topics, so what they decide to write about is important. But I often think at the Ivies, the supplemental essays can often be more important or more helpful for the student's mm-hmm. uh, candidacy. You know, usually they're, why is this college for this student, you know? And what, what they write about, why they say it's the right place, or some of the questions are, are more particular, how that student approaches it, Sometimes those are more helpful than that main essay. Yep, agreed. And I think that um, you listed off a lot of things those essays need to accomplish, and it probably sounds daunting. Um, and it is a little daunting, but I think you're certainly if the student doesn't do shows poor judgment or you know really throws it together at the last minute or you know those are the things that can really hurt an essay. A great essay will really bring that application to life. Um, there's no doubt that that's a challenging assignment. Um, 
And we are going to talk about, actually, in a future show, I think in two weeks from now, we're going to be talking about um, some bad essay ideas, essays that have gone awry. So if you're interested to hear more about the SAPs, tune in because not next week, but the week after, we're going to be digging into that a little bit more deeply. Okay, we are running very short on time here, but let's talk... um, a little bit about extracurricular activities, um, just some basic stuff on that front. Okay. That, you know, and that's a huge piece. I think you are going into that a little deeper, uh, maybe on a, a later program. But mm-hmm. just to, to, to tell you the basics, extracurriculars, how the student spends their time outside of the classroom is extremely important in the Ivy League admissions process. They want to see that the student has showed initiative, leadership, commitment, in at least two or three activities all four years, preferably all four years, mm-hmm. and significant leadership positions usually in at least two, um, achieve the highest rank in at least one, like a captain or a president of a club or the gold award, gold award of Girl Scout or Eagle Award of the Boy Scout, um, maybe starting a new activity or an initiative um, or expanding on one, really taking initiative and going above and beyond is really, really important. And one thing I want to throw in, because I think it's very important, is having significant and meaningful summer activities. Um, and they can run the gamut. I mean, they could be sports or visual arts or uh, performing arts, part-time jobs, internships, college classes, volunteering, uh, military, mentoring, shadowing, whatever. But yep. doing something substantive and meaningful with your time both in the summers and outside of the classroom. And just to throw it out there to parents, that does not mean that you have to spend a lot of money for this. Mm, in fact, I would say that a lot of times the most compelling and competitive students are finding their own opportunities or doing mm-hmm. interesting things that they've sort of created for themselves rather than a parent spending $6,000 to send someone to Costa Rica to build houses. Instead, they're maybe volunteering for a local organization um, to serve a need in their own community. And that's almost always going to be um, more impressive. Not necessarily the community service aspect of it. And if you're interested about that, you can go back. We've talked about that before, how that's not necessarily the most important thing. Um, and uh, we did, by the way, talk about the new SAT in a previous show, so you should check out okay. those archives. Um, but I thanks for the, the um, promo there on that one. But yeah, I think, I think those are all really good points. And I am um, actually next week going to be talking a lot more about the involvement that students are doing outside of the classroom and how to kind of shape what you're doing so that it becomes more of what uh, a term that Harvard uses, a distinguishing excellence, which isn't necessarily super common at all of the Ivies, the, the term, but the act of it or the, you know, the fact of having achieved at a very high level in a particular area is absolutely something that you're going to see in a lot of those pools. So um, you're going to have to tune in next week to find out more about that. Amy, anything else um, before we uh, end this segment? The only other quick thing I'd add in just for people to know uh, is the other thing that within the Ivies is, is, is uh, you know, a lot of college admissions, but within the Ivies in particular, we have something in the admissions process we call hooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of these are students have no control. It just is. But I want families and students to understand that this is part of the process and this is building that class. 
Um, you know, there's such thing as legacy parents or, or legacy, rather, parents, grandparents, other uh, siblings at the school, underrepresented minorities, whether it's geographic, ethnic, or international uh, origin, development cases, and athletic or other talents. So, you know, these particular areas are something that we, we label as a hook, and sometimes that helps students a little bit. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you, going back to the very beginning, when you have that student who's number one in his class and has very strong testing and doesn't get in, it's because they're building a class with all of these different things. Right, so exactly. Kind of throw that in. Amy, thank you so much. This is super helpful, and I feel like we should do another segment on this in the future, and maybe maybe we dig a little bit more deeply into each one of these elements. Um, but I really appreciate it, and um, we are going to go to break right now, but when we get back, uh, I want to uh, – Jean Mahan, who's been here before, is going to be with us, and we're going to be talking through evaluating the value of a particular college. Um, so stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. For those of you who have some offers of acceptance in hand, or maybe some of you are working on a college list for next year right now, one of the big questions that likely is, and if it's not, it should be on your mind, is how to determine the value of one institution over another, or just in general, how to determine the value of an institution that you're thinking about. So I'd love to welcome Jean Mahan, who's a former financial aid officer at Tufts and Quinn Sigmund Community College, to talk about this very thing. Welcome, Jean. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Well, you were so wonderful the first time that we <laughs> had to have you back. Thanks. So we are, I, I do feel like we are reading about this a little bit more uh, in the media lately, this question of value of education. You see these stories where people are hundreds, sometimes 150 
thousand or more um, dollars in debt. And just last week, Beth Feinberg Keenan was on and we talked about loans and maybe how much is too much and how to think about taking out loans. But what do you what do you feel that what does it mean to evaluate the value of call of of an education? Well, I think first families have to sort of decide for themselves what's the most important thing in this process. Is it just the best education for their child with no regard to the outcome? And with outcome, I mean, you know, whether they get a job, whether they go to grad school, you know, just go get the education and the child figures it out later. Or more and more families, especially since the recession, are talking about what's the return on investment? I'm spending upwards of 100000 maybe even $200,000 on an education, what is my child going to get from that? And so for some families, it might be prestige. You know, they think that if their child goes to an Ivy or a top-tier school, that the connections that they'll make there will be something that will help them you know, career-wise, socially, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be if looking at a school, you know, your child wants to go to medical school or go into an MBA program, what schools have the greatest return on investment for that? Or else, you know, who's going to launch your child's business career on Wall Street? Where are they going to get the best education to do that? So really taking a look at what's important to your family. And there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's I sort of say it's like, you know, you want to drive a Corolla and I want to drive a Mercedes. That doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just mm-hmm. your choice. And, and, and although I don't want to compare college education to a car, it's just the same idea of, you know, what's important to this family may not be important to that family. So having an idea going forward can be really helpful as you're trying to compile a list of schools or if you're one of those families of seniors who is making this decision in the next couple of weeks. Right. I, I, when a family asks me, well, you know, which is, which is better? Um, it's the same question from my perspective. Well, I can't decide that for you, uh-huh. which of these schools is better. It's really about what is better for you and what you value. Right. So, so if, if you're a family and you're out there and you're thinking, but I don't even know how to get started on this, so how, how would you recommend that families approach this question of what they value um, so in the education? Again, they have to, they have to think, you know, if, if, it's really important to them to have their child major in business because they think that their child will get a job as opposed to English where they might not get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a conversation for another, another segment. But, yes. um, you know, just really thinking about what's important. And then if, once they decide, they can say, okay, well, you know, my daughter wants to major in creative writing and this has got a great program for creative writing and we understand that she'll need to go to grad school. Let's figure out how many of the students from this creative writing program go on to grad school and where do they go. Or you have the student that wants to major in business or accounting or finance and you say, okay, well, you know, do I need to send my child to the best business school in the country or can they get a great education at the state university? University's business school, who comes on campus to interview for jobs, who recruits, who, what types of internship opportunities do students on that campus get? So that's one segment of it. But one thing I think is really important is you have to do a little bit of digging. So you've probably gone to an open house and you've heard families ask the question, you know, how many students are employed at graduation? And that's not really the whole story. What you really want to ask is how many students are employed in a, in a professional capacity when they graduate? Mm-hmm. And more and more schools are very proud to put that information on their websites. Again, you might have to dig a little bit for it, go to their career services page, and oftentimes they're... Um, 
they're interviewing their students as they graduate and asking them to complete a questionnaire, where will you be working, how much will you be making, what's your title, and that kind of thing. And they'll post those results on their website. And so right now, if you were looking for that, you'd probably see results for the class of 2014. And it's really great information to have because, you know, any school can say, well, 95% of our grads are employed once they leave school. Well, mm-hmm. but in doing what? Are they working at fast food restaurant? Are they, you know, right. sitting? What are they doing? This actually breaks it out so that you can see job title, the company that hired them, and the starting salary. Mm-hmm. And also, if students are working, going to do like a Teach for America or Peace Corps or um, AmeriCorps, something like that. They'll also list those as well as the students going to grad school. So it's really great information to have, and it, it gives you a sense of, okay, you know, these kids are going to work in these kinds of occupations at these companies making this much money. And that might help some families to say, well, wow, you know, I see at this school they don't have any statistics, so that's not a good sign. Right. If right. you can't find it on the career services website, I would definitely reach out to the department head of the of the program where your child's considering majoring, you know, business or English or whatever it is, and ask that question to that individual because they'd they'd know. Right. And I wouldn't necessarily I do sometimes get the question around, you know, well, do the do companies even recruit here? And the fact is that companies don't have unlimited budgets to recruit everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily be put off if the company's not recruiting there. I think mm-hmm. your point's a really excellent one. Look at where they actually were hired. Mm-hmm. So it may be that um the college helps to orchestrate interviews for students or there are alums from that college that work at different companies. And so while they may not be coming on campus to interview students, they may make opportunities available to students to interview there. They just Mm -hmm. have to go to them. Alumni Um, networks are often another source, too, because, um, you know, if they have a strong alumni network that's willing to, you know, reach out to, you know, new grads and, and connect them with other alumni that they know are friends, that can be really, really huge. A really yes. great source of, of um, connections. Absolutely. And I don't assume that just because a school is very um, prestigious that necessarily that means they have the best alums because I know that Penn State, which is a great school, it's not lacking in prestige, but they have one of the most comprehensive alumni organizations in the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being a Penn State grad can be wonderful. You run into them everywhere you go. So exactly. um, I would agree. I have, we have time for one more question. And so, you know, something that I've had parents ask me before um, would be something like, you know, well, why should I pay more at a public university in another state rather than paying lower in-state tuition in my home state? Mm-hmm. And to, to me, that's probably a good example of this question of value. Yeah, that's something I get asked a lot. And um, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, and so I'll ask them, you know, if, if your child's majoring in something that isn't offered at your state university, then, you know, then that's a good reason to go and pay out-of-state tuition to another school because your child can't get it at your state university. But if they can get it at your state university, then you have to ask why your child wants to go to that school in another state. And, you know, one time, time from, time, from time to time I'll talk to a parent and I'll say, well, what is it that your child wants? And they'll say, well, the weather's better or the football team is really great. And so then I sort of turn that question around and say, well, do you want to pay for the better weather or the better football team? Or do you want to borrow loans to pay for that? And so I had a conversation with a mom last year 
who they have two in college. The daughter really wanted to attend a state college in California because she lived in the Northeast and she really did not like the weather. And the mom indicated that she was going to have to borrow a considerable amount of money um, to be able to do that. And, you know, I said, why not tell your daughter that if she goes to school in the Northeast, um, she can leave debt-free and move to California and live happily ever after for the rest uh-huh. of her life without any yep. loans. Because right. four years goes by quickly, and if you've borrowed a lot of loans, and then you have to come back and live in your parents' basement in a climate that you hate for 10 or 15 years, that's not going to be a lot of fun either. So, you know, definitely looking to see what the reasoning is. And if it's, if it's a reason that you feel is worth paying the extra money for, then go for it. But if it's, you know, if it's kind of a, a weak reason then mm-hmm. probably you need to have a conversation with your child. Right, and I love that idea. <laughs> yeah, tough conversation, but I also love that idea. Hey, is, are you willing to pay for that? Is that mm-hmm. worth that extra money just so that your child can go to a school with a better football team? And mm-hmm. hey, some people might say yes. Yeah. Jean, thank you so much. I think this is really great, helpful information. And um, I appreciate you coming back on the show. And um, I also want to say thanks to all of my guests today. Next week, I'm going to be following up on the conversation that I had with Amy today about admissions to the Ivies and highly selective institutions and I'm going to take a closer look at developing a distinguishing excellence. So if you have questions about what is distinguishing excellence, um, how can my child get involved outside of the classroom in a way that's going to be, ma- you know, sort of maximize the impact, send them in to us this week. It's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com, and I will do my best to answer those next week on the show. We're also going to be talking about pre-professional programs at the college level for students interested in careers, things like veterinary science or pharmacy. Um, Uh, And we're going to talk through the best preparation for acceptance into these options. And finally, we're going to be discussing the pluses and minuses of working in college. Um, Don't forget, visit our archives after you listen to this show. There's some really great information on wait lists, other admissions decisions, the new SAT, negotiating financial aid packages, getting started on putting together a college list, college visits. There's so much great information on there, so check those out. If you don't want to listen to them from your computer on your desk, you can also download the shows for free on iTunes and check them out there. Um, And don't forget to come back next week because we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm